Hey, State of America fans, just wanted to let you know that our good friends, the Americans, the best Black Crows tribute band out there, doing a very special show this coming weekend, live at the Greek 3, Olympia Zorba Music Hall, 437 Market Street in Lowell, Massachusetts. That's Saturday, December 7th at 9 p.m. Please check these guys out. They're a great bunch of guys. They do the music a great service, and you won't be disappointed. So check them out. That's Saturday, December 7th at 9 p.m. Hope to see you there. Welcome to the world's premier Black Crows podcast, State of America, hosted by two of the band's most dedicated fans, David Hudson and Ian Rice. And now, let's get the show on the road. All right, everyone. Welcome back to the State of America podcast. I am one of your hosts, David, and I hope everybody had a very happy Thanksgiving. I have my buddy Ian on the other line, and Ian, I have it on good authority. You had extra servings of turkey and dressing on Thursday. Uh, That I did. That I did. But it uh, did not do me too many favors. I seemed to pick up a a dandy flu almost immediately after that. So uh, I'm here tonight on... uh, Against doctor's orders, I should say. He could be on barred time. He's he's, yes. <laughs> he's doing this on uh, uh, performance-enhancing drugs. He's full of steroids <laughs> tonight. So uh, We do apologize for uh, this episode being a couple of days late, but uh, Ian has to have a voice in order to be able to do this podcast, and just hearing me talk by myself would not be uh, pleasing to uh, most of you, I'm sure. So, Oh, you know you're the most popular <laughs> one. Don't. So... Um, Ian, obviously the day after Thanksgiving is known as Black Friday. And yes. uh, on Black Friday, we did have a Black Crows 30% off sale uh, mm. at select sites for the tour. Um, uh, that doesn't bode well. I didn't, you know, it didn't occur to me because initially I just thought it was a, a Live Nation thing. But looking into it a little bit more, it is pretty much exclusively a Black Crows thing. We had talked about this privately. It, it's it's selling in an odd manner to me. Normally, uh, when you have these kind of things, the uh, the regular seats sell first, and then those VIP packages you see are a little slow to move. In this case, uh, most things I check, you know, in the, in my area and even other areas, um, it seems like the VIP packages went real quick, and it's the remaining seats that are that are uh, sitting kind of stale, which is odd. Yeah, that's you're you're completely completely right on on that. I'm I'm kind of a little bit of a nerd, and I've been going on the uh, website where you can pull up the map and show the seats that are sold. And by and large, the you know the good seats for the most part are, are all gone. But it's that that second tier and that third tier uh, that's not being hit hard. And you got to think most of the um, really good seats are going to stuff like that because they do have the front row package. So obviously that's a finite number uh, people who can get that. And then like I got the, 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 I think the hard to handle package, my tickets on the second row, but um, it's like, it's supposed to be a ticket between rows two and 15. Uh, and then I'm not sure on the, the last package where your seats are, but for the most part, the good seats seem to be gone, but the other ones uh, don't seem to be selling well. And so I'm not bringing this up to be negative. I want this tour to be successful uh, mm. for them. And uh, because I would love nothing more than this to be successful. And then somehow out of this, either a, well, two things I'd like to see happen. I'd like for us to get a new album of new material. And then I would love for it to be successful enough that they could do a Southern harmony tour. 
and do that in like 2,000, 3,000 seat theaters. Mm. And because I would pay a lot of money to see Southern Harmony played front to back, and I would probably go to multiple shows of that. Yeah, I, I mean, I would do the same. And I ultimately, you know, as you as you project ahead of what this these kind of things could possibly mean, when this was all announced, I always saw it as like, well, if this is successful, this could perhaps lay the groundwork for getting more past members back into the band. You know, if their if their whole goal is to reestablish their their back and forth as as two brothers who are known to be, uh, you know, the battling Robinsons over the years, if they're trying to get on good ground. And if this effectively does that, then that could, you know, mean better things for the future. So, I mean, I, I would like to see it be successful as well. I myself waited a little bit to get tickets just, you know, for my own uh, financial reasons. And uh, I got the, the least package because that was really all that was available other than the astronomical one, which wasn't even a, a possibility. So I got that one that it, it's the only one that doesn't include the meet and greet. And the seats for that were in the orchestra section, but they were more towards the back. So, I mean, yeah. the seats were, they were pretty good. But that venue, which is Jones Beach in my area, the other seats, especially the upper seats, like the, the, the cheap seats, as they're known, um, are, are pretty much wide open. I'm hoping as we get – I mean, it is – we're still seven months out here. So, or, uh, you know, so as it gets closer, hopefully maybe you'll get some activity. Well, I'm thinking about if, if this does go on and we get um, some cheaper tickets – uh, I, I'm thinking about maybe hitting the Birmingham show since that's only like three hours away. Um, mm. That you know, if you wind up getting a, a nice ticket for twenty bucks for something like that, I will probably uh, make that. I do want to tell everybody if uh, if you're planning on going to the show that's in Arkansas, I believe it, the name of the town is Rogers, Arkansas. I am going for that, and I'm actually going up the day beforehand. So what I'm wanting to do is possibly put up a um, put together something the night before. And then, depending on what time the meet and greet is, put something together uh, before the show and meet up. And if it's going to be, you know, four or five of us that are going to be there, uh, we'll meet up at a bar or something. And maybe uh, I'll bring my recording equipment. We can maybe do a roundtable. I'll buy everybody a few beers or something like that. So if you're planning on going to that show in Arkansas, hit me up on Twitter, or which it's a good time to mention our Twitter. At State of America, and we have a Facebook page, State of America podcast, and Instagram at State of America. Hit me up, send me a message, and let me know. Uh, Cause you don't have to do it right now; it's still six or seven months away. But yeah, I want to put something together for that for sure. But um, speaking of Twitter, uh, thank you to our new Twitter followers. And if you haven't followed us, like I said, uh, our Twitter is at State of America. I have been playing uh, my version of Chris Kringle the last couple of weeks, and I have sent a lot of good things to people via Dropbox. So uh, all you have to do is be uh, follow us, and I'll get on there every now and then and say, all right, for the next 20 or 30 minutes, I'll ask a question, and I'll just randomly pick people and answer it. And uh, everybody's been very, very pleased with what they have received. Uh, I'm trying to do my best Ian Rice impersonation. <laughs> so for this particular episode, I uh... – I went out and uh, procured myself five original CD copies. That's the first release, not the remaster, of Shake Your Money Maker. I uh, created a little special bonus disc to go with that with some uh, B-sides and other gems and also a special State of America exclusive compilation, uh, Shake Your Money Maker Live from the Road, 1996-97. Some uh, performances of all the material from that album, except for Strut and Blues. And... Um, and that's a, a compilation that will also be included. So I have five of those to give away. 
Uh, so when this episode comes out and you see the announcement on Facebook, if you could just tag two people in the comments section and we will choose five lucky winners at random. And we will let you know as soon as uh, we have that all together. So, uh, and anybody that uh, that has signed up and, and won something from us, if you haven't received it, you shall be receiving it soon. You know, just uh, got a little behind schedule on a few things, but uh, uh, hopefully everyone's enjoying that. And, and we thank everybody for participating each time. It's uh, it's really cool. Yeah. So let's get let's give everybody a uh, I'll give everybody a little heads up about this episode, and we'll let Ian go back and uh, admit himself to the hospital, and and hopefully uh, he lives through this flu. So I need to uh, I need to convalesce. Yeah. So this episode is going to be a little bit longer than than normal, but that that's all right. So it's, it's a kind of a special episode. So we're going to talk about the uh, Shake Your Money Maker album, and we recorded this the night after the Crows made the uh, announcement for those shows. And so we're going to do one of our under review episodes where we break the album down, talk about each song and kind of its legacy, and uh, we really enjoyed that, and it's very timely based on what's about to happen. But also, we were lucky enough to have, uh, I guess we'll call them correspondents, at uh, each of the uh, warm-up shows. So we have Eric from New York, and we have Matt from California. Both uh, went to the shows and called in and gave us like a 10-minute review of it and updated us on everything that happened and gave their uh, point of view. So, Ian, I really enjoyed the Shake Your Money Maker, and uh, it's an album that I haven't honestly listened to top to bottom in a while, and I enjoyed that, and then it was really cool to talk to two people that were at the shows. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I really thank those two uh, two guys from for coming on, and uh, you know, we we really had a good time chatting with them. Really gave us some insight as to the the overall vibe and and that kind of thing. As you'll as you'll hear when we uh, move forward with the episode, but uh, yeah, definitely an album that I don't spend enough time with anymore. But it was cool in light of everything uh, to kind of go back to it and. And uh, give it a, a fresh set of ears, you know? Yeah, so we hope you enjoy that. And um, um, we do have a very special interview that will be on our next episode. We've oh, already yes. we've already conducted it. It's one that uh, I think you'll people will enjoy it. So uh, thank you all again for listening. And uh, here is Matt and Eric. And then our discussion of Shake Your Money Maker. Stay tall, everybody. We have on the other line with us our uh, first official correspondent of the State of America podcast. Please welcome to the show, Eric from New York. Eric, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thanks a lot, uh, guys, for having me on the show. And, and also thanks for uh, finally um, you know, getting the, the, the Black Crows, uh, the, the, the true freaks like us, uh, that, you know, <laughs> underbellies of the internet uh giving us a platform to to gripe and talk and provide feedback on yeah we're just like everybody else it's something we've always i kind of wish would have been around 20 years ago but it wasn't yeah absolutely 
Yeah, yeah, those would be some interesting stories. <laughs> so, Eric, you were lucky enough to go to uh, see the Black Crows at the Bowery last night. Um, the surprise show, the first time that Chris and Rich had played together in almost six years. Uh, if you could re- just quickly walk us through how you got the tickets and what the scene was like when you got there. So, you know, like you guys um, and like seemingly everybody for months, you know, we knew this was coming. And then over the last few weeks and then the whole uh, advertisement in Penn Station, um, I think we were all expecting a lot of news and uh, we, you know, we sure got it. You know, I'm fortunate enough that I I work in New York and when when the announcement happened, one of my friends texted me because he was listening to Stern and uh, I, I just can't really listen to just stern at my desk and still get things done. So I figured I would catch up, go for a walk during lunch. And he goes, crows are playing the Bowery tonight. Um, so then I started paying attention a little bit more. I saw the, I think it was a Facebook post or a tweet from the Bowery. Me and uh, my partner from work, my buddy from work, uh, uh, just headed over at maybe 1130. Uh, I was really surprised. There was already a line, pretty long line forming that wrapped around the building a couple of people guessed like where we were standing that we were maybe a hundred to 150 deep in the line. Um, but by the time we got in, the line was, you know, several times that, and from what I understand, they ended up turning people away. So I was surprised there were a lot of people in, in black rose, uh, shirts from decades ago, uh, you know, recent stuff. I saw brothers of a feather. Uh, it was just a, a lot of fans were able to, to show up seemingly, um, out of nowhere. Uh, so the vibe in the line, I think it was very similar to some of the vibe that you're seeing, um, you know, on, online and in articles and on social media and comments. A lot of people, I think, like myself, that um, like you know, morbid curiosity is part of it. But then also, when's the last time I got to see Chris and Rich on stage singing, singing and playing together? And, and you know, that's something that I've been going to for you know for decades and for you know, seen upwards of 60 shows, you know, it's a big part of my life. And so I think everyone was just sort of chatting about how they were apprehensive and a little bit pessimistic about the reunion and its motives, but that everyone wanted to take the opportunity to see them together. Well, when you finally got into the, uh, the Bowery, how, how many people does it hold? I think it's in the, I think it's in the 500s, Maybe, but I should I should double check that. I don't know what I don't know how deep the uh, balcony is. I've seen I've seen six or seven shows there. I should know that. I but I I don't know. But it's not it's not but it's not really big. Oh no, not at all. It's tight. Um, it's very tight. One of the smaller venues I've seen the crows in. Period. So when you got there to the to the show, did they have any show specific merchandise, or was it? Do you think it's what we're going to get when the tour starts? They had they were selling T-shirts, believe it or not, actually quality T-shirts um, on the way out of ticket registration. I think they had a merch set up um, at the end of the night. But uh, the, even the, but even the way the show ended was like was so abrupt that I didn't really have a chance to to look too much at it. But it appeared to be the Shake Your Money Maker Crows on on anything, anything that I saw, which was mostly which was mostly T-shirts. And, um, I don't even think I saw, I don't even think I saw a poster. I think it was, well, there was big poster outside, but I don't think there was any, any like built, you know, built out merch operation. Now, in terms of the, uh, the performance, uh, how did everything sound? How the, uh, 
the new guys, so to speak, and how are the brothers interacting with each other? Man, those are like the million dollar questions, right? Um, <laughs> I mean, I think I get, I always like focusing on positives first. You know, Rich is Mr. Consistency, right? He's, he, I think most people would agree that Rich sounds great on the guitar all the time. Um, he, he sounded great. Chris sounded great. I mean, it, it had been a while, you know, since he really belted those tunes. And, and obviously, with what he does with CRB, is a much different tone and inflection. And, you know, he doesn't have to sing over his brother. I don't know if it, his voice just sounded really good. Um, really good. I've come to learn about the, the guy playing the lead guitar. I think you say, I think it's Isaiah Mitchell. He was just, I mean, tremendous and in limited opportunities. One thing that's very clear is it's the brother's show. There were two spotlights, two mics that were moved a little bit, you know, a little bit further up. As you may have seen from watching the YouTube video, the brothers were very close together. And then the bassist and the lead guitarist were very close together. It, it, there was like clear tears in the band. There's the, there's the brothers and then there's the supporting cast uh, for right now. I, uh, I honestly, the bassist and the drummer didn't stand out to me. I don't know if it was the mix. There wasn't that thunder that Steve and Sven bring, right? It would be um, ludicrous to suggest otherwise, I guess. The keyboardist, I, I suppose, didn't stand out. There were a couple of times where, where I thought, like, oh, you know, I, I sort of, I, I guess I noticed the playing in a couple of maybe, maybe in intros or outros that was okay. In terms of the chemistry between the brothers, it's definitely weird. I mean, after all the stuff they just said for the last several years and then, you know, the way they just reconciled, you know, who knows what's what's really going on in their heads. Um, if it's them against the world, if, you know, if Chris has really addressed, it, you know, some of his demons, um, all of those things, it's really tough to, to judge after one take. But I would say to some extent, it looked like they were playing a little bit of a younger version of themselves. Um Rich d definitely didn't look comfortable uh, for a couple of songs. I didn't think either one of them looked comfortable for the encore. And I think they wanted to move really quickly through Hard to Handle. Uh, that was noticeable, too. Same with Strut and Blues. Seeing things made the night worth it. I would you know, would have paid 50 bucks to, to see that song. What was the reception from the crowd? I mean, it was, it was, very, it was very positive. Um, even for the people there who, I don't know if they're on message boards, not on message boards, on social, not on social, but they're definitely, you know, people who were at the shows in the early nineties, they were there rocking out. And then there were a ton of people who probably, you know, some industry people who got tickets, um, you know, some young people who were, you know, taking a lot of photos during hard to handle. And she talks to angels. Those are the fans that are of course having a blast. Um, so, I mean, the, the, you know, the fun factor was a, was of course high, pretty high, very high. Well, you sound kind of like me and Ian. I, I, I'm keeping an open mind about it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be positive about it. I can tell you from what I heard on Stern, the guitar player I thought added a really cool element to "She Talks to Angels" the way he was playing the the slide on it. So I'm, I'm excited about it. I'm, I'm gonna go see it. I've got a meet and greet package uh, already bought, but. Now that you've seen them do Shake Your Money Maker, and you didn't get to see the quote-unquote like second set with the hits, obviously you just got the cover, uh, they're obviously going to circle back to your area this summer. Are you going to go see them again? Hey, well, the, the weekend that they're in Jones Beach and in, in Holmdale, uh, coincidentally, I'm out of town. Um, huh. But, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll depend. Um, I want to see what that second set of hits looks like. 
you know, if the second set is five songs, uh, soul singing, remedy, wiser time. I, I would love to see wiser time once if I'm being honest with myself. Um, you know, it'll, it'll depend. It'll depend if there's chemistry. You know, again, um, Isaiah Mitchell, uh, he's just a great player. I, I really enjoyed, um, watching the lead guitarist and I'd love to, I'd love to see him be able to expand, uh, beyond shake your moneymaker. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I guess I'd have to just see how, how things progress. I mean, if given the opportunity, if you know, somewhere local, uh, and also I, I'm fortunate that I get to travel a fair amount for work, if, if they were playing, uh, would I take advantage of it? Yes. But would I go you know, today very far out of my way, having, having already seen it once, um, you know, to be determined? Now, um, for anybody that might be uh, you know, on the fence about uh, whether or not they should, uh, should go, I mean, there are a lot of the... Uh, the, uh, the tried and true diehards that are kind of seemingly up in the air or, or totally against it. Um, you know, what would your, what would your advice be uh, having seen, you know, a, a good portion of what the performance most likely will be? If the, if the black crows and the Robinson brothers upset you, you probably shouldn't go see it because <laughs> if it's not what, it's not what you're expecting from 92 to 97, 05 and 06 or you know i loved some of the music in 08 09 uh 2010 i thought was a great year for when they toured i mean i, I love that music but it's different it's definitely not that but if you want to go and um you know if you want to go and dance to to the hits and hear chris and rich you know play seeing things and she talks to angels and all of those things then i absolutely think it's worth it well, Eric, we want to be respectful of your time. We know you have a newborn. You need to tend to. Um, thank you so very much for agreeing to do this. And great, of course. Thanks, thanks for a lot, me. man. All right, everybody, we're, uh, we're really lucky tonight. We have uh, one of our listeners, and he went to the recent uh, Black Crow show at uh, the Troubadour in L.A. So uh, welcome, Matt Empston, to the State of America podcast. Thank you, guys. How are you, sir? Doing great. So, Matt, um, walk us through kind of, um, did you catch him on Stern first? And then uh, kind of how did the process go in which you uh, got your tickets to the show? Yeah, it's a good question because it was a real process. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, so I did. I didn't catch the Stern show live, but I heard it after the fact. The buzz became loud, quick, you know. So I got. Let's see. Well, I, I from their Instagram, the Black Crow's Instagram, they announced the show, but they didn't say how the tickets were going to be on sale, and it was. Uh, a couple of days before, so I just kept checking. You know, they said stay tuned to the stay tuned to our Instagram. I just kept checking it and checking it, and they were never saying how it was going to go on sale. And people were panicking on the on the Instagram comments. They were they're like, "Are you really going to wait till the the day of the show to announce this?" So I have to make plans because you know, people wanted to come. People wanted to come from you know other parts of the state, and but they really waited till the last minute. So I went to bed uh, the night before and. Uh, and they hadn't they hadn't announced how to get the tickets yet. They suddenly did Thursday morning, and they said, uh, "Go down to the old Tower Records location on Sunset Boulevard and 
tickets will be on sale at noon. Uh, so I jumped out of bed and threw on some clothes and it was a, it's about an hour drive in LA traffic, as you can imagine. So you know, I got down there not knowing what to expect. I thought it would be, you know, I didn't know how many people were going to be in line at that point. Cause I said there was only 200 tickets and I got there and ended up being about 50th or 60th in line and then just camped out for a couple hours waiting, waiting for the tickets. Well, what was the vibe like as uh, as you were sitting in line where, I mean, obviously people are excited if they're there to actually go to the show, but were people commenting on the fact that it's just the Robinson Brothers or were a lot of these people, I guess, more casual fans? Yeah, they had uh, somebody from the, I mean, the Crows organization had had like a camera there and were interviewing people and, you know, for their Instagram and all that stuff. So it was, yeah, it was exciting. It was like the old days, like when people lined up for concert tickets, you know? That's very cool. Very cool. Yeah, it was cool. And uh, and it was great to be around those folks again. You know, when you, when you, you know, everybody there was a pretty big Black Crows fan if they were able to, you know, sit out there for a couple hours waiting for, waiting for tickets. So the tickets went on sale at, at, at you know, finally at noon and, and they started, they had, they gave you, um, they gave you a wristband and you had to show ID and everything. And it was just like, it was like tra- tickets, not transferable. So if you were, um, you know, if you got a ticket, you, that had to be your ticket. The Troubadour is a very, uh, renowned venue. I mean, you know, Neil Young and uh, of course Elton John, uh, I think made his debut there. I mean, it, what's the, what's the vibe like in the room when you get in there? It was incredible. It was, you know, well, you, you even anticipated ahead of time because, you know, if you've if you've been there, you're like, oh, it's going to be so great to, you know, you're like these that band on this stage, you know, like it, it was so so exciting. Um, yeah, it was it was jam packed, and you know, everybody was everybody was psyched, and they played uh, Get On Up by uh, uh, James Brown, and then at the point when when he's when he starts singing Shake Your Money Maker, they you know they come down they came down the stairs at that point. And uh, it was, yeah, it was, it was pretty electric. Now, what was the merchandise like that they had there? Was it was it anything that was specific for the Troubadour show, or was it what you suspect we would get at the other shows? They did have, uh, they did have Troubadour specific stuff. They had, uh, they had posters for the show that were signed by the brothers, and um, what else? They had, they did have something else, but the posters or what I remember, hundred dollar poster. We gotta, we gotta get one of those posters, Ian. I know. I was just thinking that myself. Uh, so, how was, the, what was the, uh, you know, the vibe like between Chris and Rich on stage? You know, what, what were your impressions of that? It was, it was as sweet as can be. I mean, they were, they were, you know, they were back in love for sure. I was thinking uh, of officially dubbing this tour the "Say Hi to the Nice Guys." <laughs> Well, Matt, let me ask you this before we get into like the um, the breakdown kind of of what they played and how they sounded. What what are your thoughts on the reunion as far as it just being the Robinson Brothers? Does that bum you out, or are you amongst the people that's just like, hey, I, I'll get, I'll take what I can take, and and hearing Chris sing these songs again is is going to be really cool. I'm both of those. I'm in both of those camps. I mean, uh, yeah, I would certainly have preferred for for Gorman to be there and, and, you know, in a perfect world, Mark Ford and, and, you know, one of our bass players, but, and if that's not going to happen, then I'm still not going to miss this. You know what I mean? I mean, you, you got to see something 
I guess only two, you know, 200 people there. And I'm not sure how the, how big the Bowery is in New York, but I, I wouldn't expect it's more than five or 600. Is it Ian? Yeah. I mean, it's probably, uh, somewhere similar to the Troubadour, maybe slightly more. Yeah. So yeah, you got to see something that was really cool that, you know, we never thought we were ever going to get to see again. Um, yeah. and that is, uh, that's really, that's really special. How much were the tickets? Uh, 50 bucks. 50 bucks. Oh, that's not bad at all. All right, so let's get into it. They played Shake Your Money Maker from top to bottom, and then I believe they closed with It's Only Rock and Roll. Um, how right. did they How did they sound? What was it like hearing? Because, you know, uh, very few of us have, have ever heard Strut and Blues live. Uh, so w- what was it like? Uh, what were the songs like? How did the new band sound? It was it was good, and, I, you know, I think I've heard uh, you describe some of the you know, some of the other iterations, uh, some of the other players doing the songs and, you know, it was, it was passable. Like they definitely had the vibe of a, of a band that was just, you know, that they, they had re- learned the songs somewhat recently and were, you know, kind of road testing the, you know, exact way to play them. Um, everybody had some minor errors, you know, throughout the show, but you know, nothing, nothing that like detracted from, from it being, you know, still great sounding. And it was like, it's also, you know, it's a small place and they, it was pretty darn loud. So there was no real clarity, like on every note when the, when, when the guy was, uh, you know, taking solos, like it was a little, it was a little muddled for, for how loud it was. But, um, but the vibe was, the vibe was great. And, you know, they were all, they were all very into it. That was, that was apparent. Well, do you think, um, do, do you think um, this is something that you'll go see next summer? Yep, I've got tickets for San Diego, Los Angeles, and Detroit. Wow, Detroit—that's the oddball one. <laughs> yeah, that's, I'm I'm uh, I'm Canadian, so it's close to home. Oh, nice. So yeah, I'm, I've not been to the Troubadour. It's kind of on my bucket list of of rock and roll places to go. From the looks of it on the videos, it looks like the band was packed in pretty tight. There wasn't a lot of extra stage room. Yeah, not compared to what they typically have. Like Chris and Rich are usually you know, like a half a mile apart, but, uh, <laughs> this, yeah, it was, it was, yeah, quite tight. Definitely. And, uh, by the looks of it, everybody seemed to be enjoying it. That was from the videos I saw that was on the floor. It looked like a, just like a, a classic, you know, going to see an up and coming band, you, you know, you're packed in there and it's hot and it's just a great vibe. I mean, at my age now I get where that's, you know, I go, I'd rather go somewhere where I have a seat, you know, and it's air conditioned really well. But I mean, that looks like a throwback to the, the old days. So that's the kind of venue where, where big artists do go and play. I mean, like I saw Patti Smith there when she did the horses tour. Um, so that, you know, it does happen at that club from, from time to time. And, uh, yeah, it was, yeah, you can't, you can't, you couldn't deny the vibe, you know, for how excited everyone was. So as we kind of wind to a close here, um, you got to see, uh, I guess you're the second group of people since what, 1990 to see Strut and Blues play live. How, how did that come off? Cause we know Chris hates the song. So. <laughs> yeah. no, a lot of fans seem to hate it too, which I, I don't, I, I, I'm just kind of realizing I didn't, I never really heard that and, uh, I love it. And I don't know. They said, uh, Chris announced it as, um, as, George Draculius is his favorite. And I don't know if he was being facetious or serious or if he was saying that because Draculius was in the room. I'm not sure, but, uh, um, it sounded great. I, you know, it was, everything sounded great. I thought, um, you know, when they did seeing things, it was a little more, uh, 
you know, like he stretches out the vocals a lot more. Like his his vocal melodies more kind of, you know, gospel-y. Um, so not so much like the record. Uh, so that was that was noticeable. Uh, but yeah, Strut and Blues was fun. Um, Thick and Thin was amazing. Chris really seemed to enjoy that. Um, you know, after after the song, he was like, "That's that's rock and roll music." Yeah, that's what it felt like. It was it was great. Well, Matt, we really appreciate you uh, taking a, a few minutes to uh, give us a firsthand report. We uh, had a gentleman from New York did the same thing, and uh, we really appreciate it because obviously there's a very uh, finite number of you that were lucky enough to get to see it, and uh, we really appreciate you uh, reporting back to us. You know, I think um, I'm kind of like you. You said you were I, – I see both sides of it, and, and, and at times I'm, I'm frustrated with the lineup, and then I get excited about it. I'm going to see them this summer as well. And so uh, I feel like if if this is the only way we can get these songs played, especially with Chris singing, I'm I'm gonna go. And like I said yeah. under before, I don't begrudge anybody that doesn't want to go because you know of who's in the lineup. That's that's completely fine. But um, I'm one of these people that tries to make the most out of things, and so uh, I want to. I'm gonna go see it, and I'm I'm gonna have a great time. It's hard. It's hard not to be a little bit sad about that. But as you said, you take you take what you can get. Well, it's like they say, uh, you know, baby steps. Maybe this is the start of something down the line. You know, you never know. Yeah, and wouldn't it be great if they, you know, they want to do, you want to do a Southern Harmony tour with with those guys? That would be, that yes, would be that would be fantastic. <laughs> Matt, uh, maybe if they do that, you'll be lucky enough to go one of the first shows of that too, and we can send you there and and get a firsthand <laughs> report. But hey, like I said, we really appreciate you taking a few minutes to uh, help us out, and uh, really appreciate it. Yes, thank you. David, so you know, from time to time, we uh, we get deep uh, into discussing uh, one of the albums by either the band or one of the uh, solo projects. And uh, given everything that's been going on in the uh, the Black Crows universe uh, as of late, we decided to uh, bump this album up the list and uh, get to chatting about it a little bit sooner than we had initially probably anticipated. Uh, and that album is the band's 1990 debut, Shake Your Money Maker. I consider it a classic, and uh, I don't know. What are your thoughts on it? Well, you can't be a Black Crows fan and not like this album, because without this album, you don't get the other music. That's one of the ways that, that, that I look at it. Man, I can remember specifically when this came out. I was 14 years old, and it was almost required ownership where I lived. <laughs> if, you know, if you're <laughs> around that age, you, you had this album. And over time, I've probably had four or five copies and different versions of it. And um, uh, when I got into vinyl about two years ago, it was one of the first, you know, albums that that I got. But I think this album has actually a, a pretty cool legacy because in 1990, you had U2, you had Metallica, you had Guns N' Roses, you had Bon Jovi, you had Poison. Then you had stuff like Madonna, you had stuff like Whitney Houston, and then you were starting to see the emergence of rap with 
you know, things like Tone Loke and Vanilla Ice and uh, LL Cool J. Yeah. But there was nothing resembling straight ahead rock and roll at the time. No, I mean, the only bands that kind of kind of came close and then you know uh, you know ultimately uh, i believe the black crows did a couple of live things um with them here and there or, or and such or or you know uh, outlets tried to pair them together because they were vaguely similar but that was uh, tesla which was uh, you know, around that time is when they were doing the five-man acoustical jam thing and which was a really cool album and uh cinderella who had out uh, heartbreak station at the time now you hear everybody you know it's the name cinderella and they most people go run screaming but that album is actually very very blues based that heartbreak station and uh but nothing like the crows i mean these guys opening up the uh you know uh mid uh, 70s uh, vault and uh, just drawing from it and bringing that back that sound back into the limelight that oh, was I'm, great I'm thing. so glad you brought up those two albums because people are going to immediately think Cinderella and Tesla, you know, hair metal. Um, I'll grant you that on the first Cinderella album, maybe half of the second one. Heartbreak Station was its own thing. Had that band come out as not as Cinderella, but as something else, it would have been a lot. It was pretty popular, but it would have been a lot more popular. Tesla, to me, was never a hair metal band. They got no. lumped into it because they did have a power ballad. But if you listen mm-hmm. to their music, they they are just kind of nuts and bolts rock and roll for the most po- most part. Um, and I saw them a couple of years ago, and honestly, they're extremely talented musicians. Frank Hannon is an amazing guitar player, and uh, you know it, it can really go. But you're right; that's the closest thing. I was thinking maybe Aerosmith, but by that point, Aerosmith had become something that they weren't originally. This would have been post pump. For the fact that this album ever got played on the radio and became as popular as it is, it when you think about it, it was the odds were stacked against it. This was it was a million to one. Absolutely, I mean it. Um, it was just, and I remember I didn't fully get into the Crows probably until like uh, Southern Harmony, um, in terms of buying the albums and stuff. But I remember, you know, the singles from Shake Your Money Maker coming out. They were big. Those videos were big on MTV. You know, and they were big on the radio, and uh, you know they drew a lot of attention. And that, coupled with the with the personas within the band, really gained them a lot of attention quickly. And they luckily had the musical chops to back it up. They did, and obviously, at around this time when all this was going on, too, they were kind of media savvy. And some quotations from Chris all seemed to always keep them in the news. Uh, yeah, you know, interviews and stuff, but. Yeah, it was it was really interesting. You have a bunch of white boys from Georgia playing "Hard to Handle" by Otis Redding, um, mm. which was just you know kind of a a big deal at that point. Which that was kind of the song I think that really put them on the map. But yeah, how in the world this thing became what it did? I mean, it sold five million copies. It peaked at number four on the charts. It was released on Deaf American. Rolling Stone gave it three out of five. And then I have a quote from Entertainment Weekly, which this is the kind of thing that gets me riled up every time. All right, so Entertainment Weekly gave it a B plus and stated, and I quote, The Black Crows are to the early Rolling Stones what Christian Slater is to the young Jack Nicholson. A self-conscious imitation, but fine enough in its own right. Authentic bluesmen these crows will never be, but their sheer energy earns them, earns them the right to trash it up. I get so uh, I get so mad at thinking they're just a blatant ripoff of the Stones 
in the faces. It, 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 I just get so tired of hearing that. I never got the Stones. I mean, I got I get the Stones comparison, but uh, to me, that wasn't the what it wasn't the influence that showed through the most. And uh, you know, even if they if they did in in their particular case, so what? They they did it with a greater consistency, in my opinion, than those than those bands did anyway. Um, I I enjoyed much more consistently the Black Crows catalog than I did, um, you know, the Faces or, or Humble Pie or any of those bands. And, and I love those bands, but the Black Crows hit the mark much more often for me. So if they, there's a difference between blatantly ripping off somebody and and acknowledging their influence on your work. And really, that's how music is supposed to go. You know, one guy influences the next guy who does this great thing, and then that great thing influences the next person. And I mean, that's the that's a beautiful thing to me. And and the crows though were always uh, trying to get people interested in the music that they liked. You know, they did covers to get you interested in that music. That was always a great thing for me. And I owe you know I've said this on previous episodes. I owe about eighty percent of my music collection to them in some way. You know. One of the things I completely forgot to ask Steve when we had him on the podcast was about the transition from the Mr. Crow's Garden music to what we heard on Shake Your Moneymaker because by all accounts, they sounded more kind of R.E.M. slash psychedelic than they did classic rock up until they went in to record this album. Is that the impression you've always gotten? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I've heard some of the early bootlegs and, and then from reading Steve's book, of course, it sounds like Shake Your Moneymaker was a lot of work for them. Things were maybe still a little clunky at the time going in, and they really put a lot into making a great rock record. And I think they achieved that. But, I mean, it's miles away from, you know, the uh, you know uh, relatively short amount of time period they spent making, uh, you know, a far superior record, which was the Southern Harmony. So, I mean, they really... The thing I always admired about the Crows in their early days is they put a lot of work into the record, and then they hit the road for such an exorbitant amount of time and really worked out their sound. And when they were ready to do that second record, they, they could not be stopped. No, they could not, and they really got their chops on this tour and, and were a fine-tuned machine when they went in to record Southern Harmony. Absolutely. And really, you, you wouldn't have Southern Harmony without the Shake Your Money Maker record and the subsequent tour. All of that culminated into the magnificence that is that Southern Harmony record. It's it's weird. When we were prepping for this, I've gone back and listened to it all the way through twice today. And I can't think of the last time that I really went and listened to this record all the way through. I do that still on Three Snakes, Amorca, and Southern Harmony. And most of the time now, if I hear songs off Moneymaker, that's songs that are just on shows that I listen to. But... I really enjoyed it because it brought me back to being a teenager again. And regardless of what you think of, of the Crows and which direction they went in, at their essence, they're always going to be a rock and roll band. And this is a pure as pure of a rock and roll album as you're ever going to find. And, you know, I, I, I had the very same experience. I'm listening to the record. Actually, I listened to it for the final time today just before we recorded. But listening to it all the way through, it's like these songs have really become things I hear in concert that are peppered in with other tracks I like much more. And, you know, and it's kind of you kind of take them for granted a little bit. But uh, but, yeah, I, I haven't actually listened to the studio versions of a lot of these songs in quite some time. And obviously they're about to tour and play the whole album in its entirety. And 
I think kind of their their strategy on it, I think is 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 working amongst the masses, not necessarily amongst a lot of Americans. But I've had several people text me, uh, "Hey, I'm going to go see this because they're playing that album all the way through." And so, regardless if you if you got off the train at Southern Harmony or you got on the train at you know um, Three Snakes, um, there's no denying the power of this album, how big it was. And just the fact that it played a role in a lot of people's, you know, adolescence. Yeah, I mean, the the thing about this record is, you know, and a lot of the uh, commentary uh, on the negative side of the argument regarding the whole 30th anniversary situation is, you know, well, you know, that was their most commercially successful record. And, you know, they, and that's presented as a bad thing. But, you know, I've always said that, you know, you have pure pop music and you have pure rock music. And every so often... They will meet in the middle somewhere and there will be records that appeal to both categories uh, of fans. And that's that's really, to me, an impressive thing. If you can capture more than one, you know, fan base kind of thing, it, 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 that's that's great. I mean, if your music if your music is pure rock, but you put elements into it that can cross over to the mainstream, I don't I don't see why that's a bad thing. No, I don't either, and and I agree with Steve in his book, and even I've heard him mention it in some interviews. There was a way they could have juggled both sides of the of the fan base and made it work. You you, you sprinkle a few of these in every night, um, and a few from um, Southern Harmony, and uh, you know some of the the I guess conspiracy was a, a single on Amorca. You sprinkle that in, and you know as long as you have three or four of those a night, you're going to get the average fan. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a lot of what Steve was saying in his book was true. They just, a lot of times, just couldn't get out of their own way, you know, and uh, that's unfortunate. Not to say that I don't enjoy every minute of every thing I've heard and, and every choice the band made following Shake Your Moneymaker, you know, provided their fans with some wonderful piece of music, so I can't necessarily criticize anything they did but it, you know it's it's funny to think that a, a record that has songs like jealous again and twice as hard and stare cold and and even she talks to angels can be considered a negative thing among some of the more seasoned fans it's weird to me yeah i agree it's it, while this isn't my favorite album it's by far not my least favorite album by them and no definitely not i was kind of blown away when i really started going track by track i only have two clunkers on here so me too. <laughs> uh, so I mean that's 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 pretty good. Um, now now I'm curious if our if our clunkers match up. <laughs> well, I mean, <clears throat> yeah. is, go tell the congregation isn't on this album. No, like, it's not. Neither is Diamond <laughs> Ring. And uh, <laughs> uh, I, I I bit my tongue on that Steve interview when he was talking about Diamond Ring. <laughs> talking about how I, you much know, he going, liked it. Going back and yeah, that and going back and listening to um, the interview when I when I when we were cutting it together. Um, he does mention Go Tell the Congregation, too, and I was so annoyed that I missed that at the time. <laughs> you know, you know, I would have dropped something in there. i got to keep that going, you know? Well, luckily, because of your internet connection, we didn't uh, do it over video like we normally did, because when he was talking about Diamond Ring, I was like, no, no, don't do that. <laughs> but hey, you know what, though? I'm Honestly, I'm going to go back and listen to Go Tell the Congregation and Diamond Ring with an open mind because Steve talked about them in such a positive light. I have that much respect for Steve. Absolutely, and I was thinking the same thing. The way he was talking about Sven's bass line, 
on uh, Diamond Ring. I, I, I'm definitely going to go back and uh, check that out because uh, uh, it's not something I can pull to my mind without hearing it. So thank you, Steve, for potentially opening our eyes to something we may, might have missed on, on that track. He might make the blind to see. We don't know. Yes. <laughs> but uh, all right. So why don't, we, uh, why don't we dive into this album head first here and uh, let's uh, do what we usually do, track by track kind of situation. And uh, album opens with Twice as hard. record uh you can't you cannot deny the power of the intro riff uh you know many times when i've when i've had that as an opening song live uh it's one of those ones at least for me that gives you that that shiver up your body you're like whoo this is going to be good you know it's off to a good start you know what i mean uh it's it's probably in my opinion one of the best lead-off tracks on any album by any artist i mean it really sets the pace i don't know what are your thoughts on it um, I agree with you. I think with the ex- exception of maybe, I don't know. <laughs> it's hard to rank the opening tracks by the Black Crows, at least amongst the, the first four albums, because they're all so good. But this is, uh, like you said, it's a great opening track. If you just bought the album and hadn't heard the singles, this is going to be your first awareness of, of what they sound like. Uh, like you, that opening riff, it's very simple. Even I could play that on guitar at one point when I was used to take guitar <laughs> lessons. So, uh, But it's a very simple but effective riff, and it just turns into like a hard-driving stomper. And like you were saying, I've seen them open with this, and I've seen them close with this, which is in essence a mark of a great song. I do think this is going to be one of those ones when you see live and Steve's not playing, it's going to be a little different because this is one where I feel like Steve beats the heck out of the drums on this. He does on basically every song, but this is one where you can really, really tell what he's bringing to the song. But uh, it was a, you know, it was a radio hit. It was a uh, on the hard rock charts. This one, I feel like, of all the ones that get played a lot off this album that Die Hard and Morgans are okay with, I feel like this one leads leads itself to be one that most people don't frown upon hearing. No, definitely not, and and I, I will 100% agree with you on the, the power of Gorman on this track. I was thinking that as I was listening to it in the car, like, oh, some of these are going to be hard to pull off without his uh, his uh, his force behind the kit there, and, uh, you know, but it is a great song, and it is one that, being from this album, does come out unscathed a lot of times. It doesn't get the criticism that a lot of the other singles did there is a great version of this you can find on youtube they were on uh, i think it was the jules holland show in england and the lead singer of the stereophonics sings with them this was during Mm -hmm. the lines era and um it's a really really good version and uh really hard hitting and uh if i go like searching for twice as hard that's kind of oddly enough one of the ones i usually go for that is a great version, and I believe that's where uh, Steve began his relationship with the Stereophonics, if I'm not mistaken, uh, which led to him touring with them. Would make sense. A great track like that is – it's like a one-two punch on this album. 
uh, right behind it is uh, uh, Jealous Again. I hadn't listened to the studio version of this in a while. You know, like we mentioned before, there was a bunch. I just kind of lean on, leaning on the live versions for a while. To me, this was the thing that, that established them as the, the rock force that they were and would continue to be in the, in the early to mid nineties. Um, it's such a powerful single and, and there's so many elements in this song. I, I think why I started gravitating towards the live versions is because I, liked what Ed did with it on the keys. It's as great as the keys are in the studio version. Ed really added a little something to that that was extra, you know. Well, it was the first single, so it was the first time we we've, we heard the band. And I think the comparisons to the Stones and the Faces are fair on this song. Uh, if you'd have told me this song was on, like, uh, Sticky Fingers or Exile on Main Street, I could see that. Um, I think it's a great track, <laughs> You know, of course, it has that opening lyric that took forever for people to, to to figure out what was actually being said. For the longest time, I didn't I didn't understand that. And um, <laughs> also, I don't know about you. I may make myself look like an idiot, but it wasn't until like the chronology sessions that I realized the end of the song they're singing "Jealous Again" with a restless is it restless heart a restless soul? I didn't believe it's restless heart. Restless heart and. It is mixed so low on the end of that song. To me, I, as many times I've heard it, I had never heard that before. And then I remember, I, I think it was on the chronology version. I was like, oh, they added a, a lyric at the end. And then somebody on the message was like, no, that's always been there. But they never played that live. And then no. you go back and listen to it and listen to it with educated ears, and it's there. It is very deep in that mix, though. It's, it's, it's subtle. It is. And I'll tell you a quick little nugget about this. Uh, my friend Kyle, who uh, has been on my other podcast a couple of times, has probably the nicest high-end stereo system I- I've ever personally ever listened to. And we were at his house, and he goes, I want you to hear this. At the beginning of the song, if you have a really, really good system, when Rich goes to play the guitar, you can hear the 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 sound wave bouncing off the snare of Steve's kit before the drums kick in. And... Um, I mean, for a record that's pretty polished, that's that's unusual. But I actually, there's a lot of records by other bands you can pick that up on, and I always love that. To me, it gives you that live in the room feel, which I think is great. An unplayed snare just vibrating from the from the sonics of the guitars and things like that. It, it's very cool to me, and it takes away some of that maybe some of that glossy studio stuff you get sometimes. You know, agreed. You know, they're not playing that solo like you see a lot of times now. I guess because of uh, Pro Tools and stuff, they'll just be playing the solo while they're in like the control room with the producer and the engineer, not even the actual studio part. And that, to me, that takes a lot of the allure away from it. Actually, I just thought of it as we were, you know what other track you can hear that on? You can hear that on uh, Walk, Believer, Walk on Warpaint. Really? I'll have to go try that out next time, yeah. I'm, over, next time I'm over at his house. 
<laughs> but uh, so then following that up, um, they slow it down a little bit, which I know uh, a third song slowdown is a characteristic you're a big fan of. But uh, uh, it's uh, Sister Luck. I feel I, I uh, again another one of those songs I, I haven't heard the studio version in a bit. I always loved this live. I always thought it was a you know a decent way to kind of calm things down a little bit before they shot back into something else. It's a it's a pretty straightforward track for me. It's not the not on my top ten list, but it's also not my bottom ten list either. So, uh, what are your thoughts on this one? I absolutely love it musically. It may be my favorite track on the album, and one of the things I think that's interesting about this record especially considering the time frame the ballads or the slow songs that are on here were much more mature for their age than uh than you would think for a band that was this young both in actual years and recording experience they didn't take the easy way and do power ballads there's nothing sappy about any of the slow songs on here you know it's not like every rose has its thorn or or patience or I don't know. Uh, don't know what you got till it's gone, and I, I really appreciate that, especially in hindsight. And um, also feel like live, I can kind of always judge the condition that Chris's voice is in, how he sings this song, and I, I just at times he really puts his heart and soul into it, and it just has such a, I don't know, the song moves me, and I really like the version on Crowology. I like the version here, but I really like the one on Crowology, and this is just—it's a great. This is a great song, regardless of era. I do feel that in live performances, uh, Mark did add quite a bit to this in, in his tenure with the band. But it, it is always uh, a song that comes off very well live, and I would never be disappointed if I had it in a in a set list and I thought of a show is, that I was at. I also thought amongst the back catalog, this is one where Luther did a really good job. You're absolutely right about that. 100 percent um and it was i felt it was hard for luther to find his voice on a lot of songs that he wasn't the original player on and and you're 100 percent right this is one that he did manage to find his way on and, and it was great but uh so that brings us to could i've been so blind
I'm, I'm now wondering if this is where we're going to agree. For me personally, it, it never really did much for me, this song. I consider this song one of the true filler tracks in the band's catalog. This is not, I mean, we're talking about, I just said before, not in my bottom 10. This would definitely be uh, in my bottom 10. It's just, it's it's very generic to me. It's not it's not the Black Crows to me. That's what it what it is. It's not a maybe not in somebody else's hands might be a fine song, just didn't never really clicked for me within the context of of the Crows. I'll quote Donald Trump. Wrong. <laughs> this is this is my second favorite rocker on the album after Twice as Hard. Um, is that right, man? I love it, and I love like the tempo change on it. It gets kind of slow. And all right, so if if you actually play music, I. I'm, I'm going to sound like an idiot here, but Steve's drumming seems to be like a half step behind the rest of the song at times when it slows down. I love that. And always, this is one I always thought that they just kill it, you know, when they would play it live. And Mark really added a lot on this one uh, whenever you saw it live. And I wish it would have gotten played more. And to me, it never gets old. So I think we have, we're really disagreeing on that one. Oh, we have butt heads. I <laughs> thought for sure we would match up on this. I'm 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 shocked. <laughs> nope. Man, I'm I'm so surprised. <laughs> we're, th- we're, th- we're three for three out of four so far. All right. Well, I we're definitely definitely going to agree on the next track. I think uh, the next track, seeing things, um, is probably um, one of, if not the best track on this album. live track always um a highlight for chris robinson where you you know certain songs are oh mark ford you know takes the reins on this song or rich takes the reins on this song this is a chris robinson showcase i love it it's just such a such a soulful song it really it really evokes a, a lot of the best elements of uh certain periods of rock and 60s soul and things like that and I, I love it i love it every time all right, so I have a kind of a complicated relationship with this song. When the album came out, I hated it. I didn't like it. Everybody else loved it. My problem with it was, and I am normally not this way, but you know, there's an old saying in the music industry, don't bore us, get to the chorus. Right. I feel like the, the first verse for me just drags so long that, that, that 
before it gets into that first chorus. That's my knock on it. Over the years, this one has really changed for me, and um, I, I like it a whole lot more than I did back then. I agree with you. Live, it's a powerhouse song that seems to always just bring the house down whenever they play it. It's so powerful. It's another example of a mature ballad, not like a you know a sappy you know every rose has its thorn or uh, whatever. You just pick one from that time frame, and uh, but I do think. When they play this song live, it really taxes Chris's voice. And I yes. wonder if, like, in the later years, why it became such... It was more and more rare that it got played. Because, you know, he takes on the Southern Baptist preacher there at the end. You know, he just really gets into it. And uh, I, I could really see this song blowing his voice out if he's not careful. Now... There's moments in that in that song where if they have the backup singers, he can let them do a lot of that heavy lifting, and which he did, and which is smart. But I agree with you. When this song is played live, it's just it, it's a powerhouse. Oh, absolutely, and and really to me, this was their first um, effective use of the female backup singers too. Um, you know that that thing that would become such a uh, uh, you know uh, an integral part of their sound. Uh, it's fantastic. That being said, we come to perhaps now one of the most, in my opinion, controversial tracks in their catalog, um, and that is the massive hit cover of the Otis Redding uh, track, Hard to Handle. It really, it's what started the, you know, the band's trajectory. This is really, I believe, their biggest hit. Um, I, I always kind of felt bad that this was their most, uh, their most well-known song because it doesn't provide an accurate representation to me as to what the band is capable of, uh, you know, as great a cover as it is. And I love, you know, Chris's cadence on it and the way he delivers the, uh, the lyrics. Cause it's, you know, obviously is different from Otis Redding's approach uh, and they do a fine, fine job with it. Great solo, uh, ultimately not by Jeff C's, uh, on the studio version by Brendan O'Brien, you know, great track, but I don't know. I, j I, I always had mixed feelings about it because it's not, the best representation of their work. I don't know. What's, what, what's your interpretation of it? I hate the song. Never liked it. Never will. And it has nothing to do with it being their most popular one. I'm not one of these people that's like, you know, hates a band that has popular songs. I, it's not the case. The other singles from this album, I absolutely love. I love the singles from Southern Harmony. But I, the only time I could stomach it is like on um, uh, Freak and Roll or whenever they have like the horns. And they, mm -hmm. you know, they, they jam it out a little bit. I actually like that, but I, I have never liked it. I don't like hearing them play it. I mean, even if they've got the horns, I'm going to always opt for another choice if I can. Uh, if I go see them and this is played mid-set, it's definitely a bathroom break or, you know, go grab another beer. 
Um, I, I just ha I've never liked it, and no offense to Otis Redding, but this I, it just never has done anything for me. I bought this album in spite of Hard to Handle, if you can believe that. I mean, it's not even Otis <laughs> Redding's best song, so you know. Um, but you know, I I totally get that. I mean, do you like the um, the remix version of it that includes the horns that did get some? Radio airplay, from what I understand, in, in some markets. Uh, do you prefer that because it has the horns on it, or it still doesn't do I much mean, for you? I mean, it may bump it from a two to a three, but you know, it's like throwing deck chairs off the Titanic. <laughs> memory serves me correctly um i think the next song doesn't do much for you either but i don't 100 percent remember um i happen to like it it's a track called thick and thin like it I, what really put the song over the top for me was uh i saw them do it on saturday night live and uh, I, I believe like early to mid 91 and i really liked the performance of it i kind of like the lyrics it's a, it's a straightforward one it's nothing like too crazy nothing too special but i just like the track but uh, am i right uh, is this not one for you or my problem with it is for so many times when i've seen them live for whatever reason this has been the encore and you know, I, you know, I'm a set list watcher like everybody else. And I'm like, oh, you know, this, the encore, this, it's, we're going to get a cool song. And, you know, people will get willing or they'll get torn and frayed or, you know, they'll get, um, you know, tied up and swallowed. And I always get thick and thin every time, it seems like. And it's not that I dislike the song. I just, for that reason, it's always bothered me. I suspect, though, that the band enjoys playing this song. I can see how if you were in the band, this would be a fun one to cut up on. It has kind of an old-time rock and roll feel to it. Um, my, my dislike of it has more to do with I've just seen it as an encore so many times, or I've seen it thrown in at a weird spot in the set. But I, I would say I'm middle of the road on it. Uh, I, I'm not just going to throw it in the trash bin like I would Hard to Handle. And I see why they play it. It's it's a, it's a fun song probably for them to play, and... To, to a lot of people, they like hearing it because it is, it's probably as up tempo of a song as they do. 
Yeah, I mean, I could get it where it's just, I mean, it's a quickie in terms of like length of time. You know, probably just something they throw in to have a little bit of fun. But, uh, you know, I've always been a little bit more partial to it than, say, you know, the average person. All right, so the the next track up on the uh, up on the list is uh, arguably one of their biggest hits. Definitely very divided amongst fans, divided in the band, from what I understand from reading uh, Steve's book, of course, and that is the iconic "She Talks to Angels." Um, I think it gets a lot of flack because of its mainstream popularity, especially from a lot of the diehard people. But I, I find it to be one of one of rock music's most powerful ballads, and I mean that in the best way possible. It's it has this you know uh, enduring quality about it. It's such a it's such a genuine song to me. The lyrics are very original. Um, you, know, you, you didn't, especially in 1990, you weren't hearing things of that nature, things of that depth. And it's 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 like I mentioned before. It's very rare when a song can can bridge the gap between pop and rock music and come together and 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 grab so many from each fan base. And that's exactly what she talks to angels did. And that's why it's still on the radio. And that's why it's still you know is a is a favorite amongst you know even the most casual people. You know, it's why a lot of guys can take their wife to a Black Crow show. Yes, yes, it is. <laughs> I, I, I love the song, and I, I, I agree with everything that you said. I mean, do I want to hear it every night? No. Does no. does this particular version is it the best? No. My my favorite version I've said before uh, on our last episode is the one on Crowology. I just for some reason mm-hmm. it really moves me, and I like the the bonus track version that's all acoustic on this. She paints those eyes as black as night. She pulls those shades down tight. Yeah, she gives a smile when the pain comes. Cause the pain gonna make it, gonna make it all. This is one of the few songs that you'll hear them play that sometimes both guitar players are electric. Sometimes one is acoustic. I believe on this tour, it looks like Rich is going to play acoustic on it. And I really like, like we said, what the um, the, the new guitar player from the band Earthless that's uh, with the Crows now, what he brought to it on the Stern show. Uh, I thought this is one that Luther absolutely nailed when they play. This is 
completely in his wheelhouse with the slide guitar. And I thought Mark added a whole lot to this. So this was one of those ones that regardless of who was playing that second guitar brought something to it. And it's one that for, for honestly, I can handle acoustically or I can handle it when they play it fully electric. I, I think it's a great song. I understand why if you're a fan of a diehard fan of this band, which all of us are, I understand why you get tired of it because people think that's what the black crows are. That's what bothers me about hard to handle. And, and she talks to angels is people think that's what the black crows are. That's what they were. That was not what they became. And, and that does bother me, but to write this when they're under the age of 20, I mean, come on. For a young band, it achieves something that, uh, you know, bands that have 10, 20 years under your belt could only hope to achieve. And that's no matter what they personally feel about it or felt about it or whatever or anybody, you can't deny that it's it's a it's a very well-written song, a very well-performed song. And it just it has a quality that just appeals to a lot of people. And that's, you know, that's. It really is a great thing because ultimately when you make music, I feel like you want to get it to as many people as possible. You, and if it can touch multiple you know, varieties of people, how, I don't see how that's a bad thing. And this song gave them the capital to go on and, and, and make a Morka and make Three Snakes. Exactly. And when they would play this live with Ed, he added a touch, his touch on this with the organ. Always sounded good. Oh, yeah. Ed always sounds good, you know? Yeah. But what doesn't sound good to me is the next track up on the album, which is um, a track actually I came to to skip quite a bit. Listening to it now, I like it a bit more, and that is Struttin' Blues, a song that has famously been regarded by uh, Chris Robinson himself as a song that he doesn't care for that much. Uh, I don't mind it. It's it's a basic rock track. I certainly prefer it, you know, more so than uh, could I've been so blind. It, it's not the greatest track in their in their catalog, but uh, you know, uh, now uh, more so than before, I, I actually kind of enjoyed it. I don't know what's your take on it. I'm not really a fan of it. I I, I would definitely scratch this and put "Don't Wake Me" in its place mm. uh, for sure. Um, I'm in agreement with Chris on this. I, I understand why he doesn't want to sing it. The lyrics are just kind of odd and the the only thing i really like about the track is chuck lavelle's playing on it i, th- I think he yeah. uh his organ uh that that he puts on there is is really good but this is kind of the if you're a diehard crows fan this is maybe kind of one of the drawing cards to get you to the show is because they admittedly do not like this song it's kind of like when metallica had to play uh Ride the Lightning beginning to end, and they'd never played Escape before, and James Hetfield hated that song because he basically said the record company forced him to to write that song. And so, really? you know, yeah, so they have heartily played that when when they played Ride the Lightning all the way through. So uh, this, honestly, um, it, this is <laughs> this is one of the ones where where it's going to be interesting to see them play it. I, I, I don't, not a big fan of it, no. No, I mean, you know, again, like I said, it's it's an okay rock track, but it's it's not anything that's 
you know, particularly I'm dying here at any point, which is a completely different story for the final track on the uh, officially released album, which is um, perhaps one of the band's greatest show openers uh, is the fantastic uh, Stare at Cold. It's definitely my favorite on this album. Another one of my favorite live show openers. This, this to me, is almost falls into the category of a signature track for the band because it really, it really showcases a lot of what they're capable of, and I, I feel is the most, the most indicative of of things they would do later. You know what I mean? Oh, such a cool song, such a cool opening to it. Um, I, I have nothing negative to say about it. Uh, all the different incarnations of the band, I think, handled it well. But I'll be honest with you, I think Luther handled it probably the best. His slide playing on this is just, it's just, it's just amazing. And uh, for most Crow's albums, they usually end with a more mellow song. Now there is a hidden track on this that we'll get to in a second, but I'm not even going to count that as a song. It's so short and so worthless that it doesn't even matter. But, <laughs> but you know, most of their albums, they kind of sent you home uh, with, a, you know, uh, a slow number or a mid-tempo number. This isn't. I love how when Luther got in the band, it, it became more prominent uh, being played. And I really liked how they worked it into the middle of my morning song a lot on that uh, 2010 tour. I thought that was creative. I thought it was a way to, they so they wouldn't have to jam my morning song and Chris wouldn't have to do the, the sunrise portion of that, you know, cause that took a huge toll on his voice. I'm sure. And I'm sure that's why my mm. morning song kind of went into the, the background a lot, but this was a way they could work it in. And, and it was just so much fun to hear. And this one, honestly, if I were the record label, I would have picked, picked this over jealous again for the opening single. It definitely rivals it in terms of, uh, uh, appeal of their, rock sound you know it's it's uh it's a great track a powerful way to finish off the album in my opinion now but it really isn't the full finish to the album because as you mentioned there's a hidden track on there um which i always confuse the title of this and i i neglected to write it down so i wouldn't sound like an idiot but um was it is it live too fast blues mercy sweet moan or yes and it's yeah. to me it's completely irrelevant it adds nothing to the album and i don't know why they put that on there well, if you remember, you know, uh, especially in the in the in the '90s, uh, because of the of the the new technology that 
CD provided. A lot of people were high, putting hidden tracks and things on CDs. So, you know, it. Uh, I think it was just a product of its time, you know. None more famously than on Kerosene Hat, Cracker put a Euro Trash Girl, which a lot of people think is one of Cracker's best songs, and that was a hidden track. But uh, Is yeah, that right? Yeah, the hidden tracks were, were there, but man, you, you could have you put some other songs on there other than this one. Yeah, I agree. Um, I don't think it's meant to be considered amongst the other 10 songs. I think it's just kind of a little bit of something. Um, but, you know, that being said, there were a couple of B-sides uh, associated with this album, and you can already see where the Crows started that trend of throwing away some of their best material, um, uh, that being um, the the wonderful Waiting Guilty, which admittedly the studio version of isn't quite as good as the live version because the live version has a a slow buildup at the beginning that's really cool but that's one of their greatest songs and I don't know how it didn't make the record The studio version isn't anywhere near as good as um, the live version, and it kind of became like a, a big a beast when it was played live. But uh, the studio version is much shorter; I think it's like three and a half minutes or whatever. But mm. uh, I definitely, you definitely could have put that in over "Hard to Handle" or "Thick and Thin" for me, and would have would have been just fine. Or and and uh, yeah, those those two. That's, that's what I would have scratched. Well, you know what I would have changed out, but you know, I don't want to. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, so. <laughs> but then the other B-side, which um, actually I don't know if it was technically a B-side or if it just appeared on the Shonuff reissue, Don't Wake Me. mentioned before you kind of had a a thing for this track you like it yeah i like it i think it's a lot of fun it's just straight up you know straight up rock song and 
I wonder if this kind of maybe was a, a lay around from the Mr. Crow's Garden days because it's got a little bit more of almost like a punk feel to it. Um, when I saw Magpie play, uh, uh, Rich, they played it, and Rich goes, I haven't played this song in over 25 years, and he went right into it. So that was one of the cooler first-time or long-time uh, off-the-set-list songs I've seen. But yeah, I, I, th- I think it's a great track, and I think it could have made the album. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that about the Magpie because I had a very similar experience myself. Uh, he dusted off a song from the Moneymaker time period that didn't make the record and never made any subsequent record. Uh, it was called Miserable, and they did that here in New York. And I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe they're playing this. Right. Um, you know, but uh, with regard to, to Don't Wake Me, I, uh, I, 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 I never really connected with it. it. To me, it's just much like the uh, other track I mentioned earlier just kind of a very generic rock song to me i don't it, it something about it just never it's definitely a song you know, written by a very young band yeah I, and, and again it's i'm not trashing it it's nothing against it it's just and and as the case is with a lot of what's regarded as the crows you know lesser material in the hands of another band it probably would have been tremendous but they have the crows have so much more that's that's way beyond other bands that you know it uh it's hard to, to take sometimes. Agreed. Um, only uh, other B-side that isn't a remix um, is uh, Charming Mess. My personal take on it is I love the track. I 100% get why it's not on the record because I, I can't think of a song that sounds closer to Rod Stewart's Hot Legs than any other track I've ever heard. So that's probably why it didn't end up on the record because the riff is so similar. But uh, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that one? I always forget that they made this song. I really do. I always forget about it. I, I echo your sentiments completely. I completely agree with you. I like the chorus on it, though. Uh uh, it's a very catchy chorus. It, it definitely could have worked. If there was no Hot Legs, it would have worked as a as a single, even probably. But you just, I mean, put them side by side, they're almost identical musically. So overall, the biggest challenge I, I've ever had with, with Shake Your Money Maker is the production of it. Um, I find it to be like a shade under Kevin Shirley's type of production where it's very, very studio, very kind of glossy. And um, I find I, – and now somebody also mentioned that this was adjusted with the reissue, but I find the original version lacking a lot of low-end, you know, a lot of the bass frequency. You don't hear it too well. Well, you complain about the, the production on it now, but mm-hmm. compared to like Motley Crue's Dr. Feelgood and all that stuff, this is a raw-sounding album for the time. It is. I, I 100% agree with you because, you know, you mentioned Dr. Feelgood. I mean, that's Bob Rock. Bob Rock is known for big-sounding records. I mean, that's you his know, masterpiece, really. Yeah, that and the Black Album, mm-hmm. of course. But um, it, the production to me, even though it is more raw, 30 years on, it sounds dated to me. 
whereas a lot most of the other crows records don't have that sound to me the the only exception being by your side which kind of sounds of its time period i agree with you but uh you know you can definitely see this record i think it's it's what pulls me me personally away from it um from being higher up on my my list of a of appreciation is uh, the band does sound very embryonic at this stage, which is why I think too, I, I spent a lot of time listening to live versions of this because even though it suits a lot of the songs, Steve's drumming on this album is much more mechanical than what it would be later where he got like a groove and a flow to his playing. This is much more. Well, and he know, still was very young in, in playing the drums. He didn't start yeah, he was 21. So, I mean, it wasn't like he had, you know, 10 years under his belt. Yeah. Oh no, I'm not knocking him at all, but you can see where he went from there, and that's that's the thing is, once you see where they've gone, when you go back, then it, it sounds different. You know what I mean? I'll say it again, and I know some people took exception with it. I I don't think anybody's made a bigger jump from record one to record two than they did. Never. I have never encountered such a a, a stark difference between sound, styles, ability, songwriting. They really. Put the work in, and it paid off. Um, but, you know, as far as debut albums go, uh, this is probably one of the best debut albums. By sheer fact of, uh, between the two of us, you know, obviously the, the choice is different, but that's eight out of ten songs that are we think are fantastic on the album. That's an 80% success rate. How many albums can you think of that have that? You know what I mean? There's not a whole lot. And I, I think it, I think if if you... You weren't beaten to death with Hard to Handle and She Talks to Angels. Amorkins would have a higher opinion of this album than than they do. I think deep down, people really like it. And like you do like you and I did. You listen to it for the first time forever, top to bottom. You're like, oh yeah, there's not a lot of stinkers on this. It's just some of them have just, we've just been beaten, you know, beaten in your head so much. It's kind of almost like a, a clockwork orange, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, so that, that, uh, that pretty much, you know, wraps up the uh, the album, and uh, and um, uh, David was kind enough to let me select the play out music this week. Um, I did find a, a very very nice live version uh, of Seeing Things from February tenth, nineteen ninety seven, a band performing in France. So this is with Mark Ford uh, on the lead guitar position, Seeing Things. Uh, thanks for tuning in, everybody. Stay tall.
Got to be here. 